Gender bias affects boys' experience in school, how they feel about school, their classmates, and their learning. It's pervasive and common, and until we admit that and grapple with the gender equation in schools, things aren't going to get much better. Stay tuned for this conversation with our guest. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park This is the On Boys Parenting Podcast. I'm your co-host, Janet Allison of boysalive.com with Jennifer L.W. Fink of buildingboys.net. Stay tuned after these messages. Does your little one refuse to wear socks? Some kids are super sensitive to that seam that goes across the toe, or maybe they have skin sensitivities like eczema that makes wearing socks super uncomfortable. So imagine socks without the seam and socks and PJs and boxer briefs that are made of the softest cotton and merino wool. Q for Quinn has your back. This mama started her company because her child had eczema and other skin sensitivities. Q4Quinn.com has cute socks. They have boxer briefs. They have PJs, all ethically sourced not only for your kids, but for you as well. Check them out. We are proud to feature a company that uses responsibly sourced wool and cotton without all the harmful chemicals and toxins so you can have clothes gentle to your skin and gentle to the planet. Q4Quinn.com. Use the Envoys coupon code for 10% off your order. That is the letter Q, F-O-R, Q-U-I-N-N.com. Use the Envoys coupon code for 10% off and uh, you'll be rocking those socks before you know it. Gender bias affects boys' experience in schools. It's most often unconscious and unintentional bias, but it affects how our boys see themselves, how they feel about school and learning. And it's pervasive and it's common. And I think, Janet, I'm sure you agree with me, until we admit that and grapple with the gender equation in schools, things aren't going to get much better. Joining us today is Jason Ablin, author of a soon to be out book, The Gender Equation in Schools, How to Create Equity and Fairness for All Students. Jason is an educator with 30 years experience in schools and expertise in psychology and neuroscience as well. Welcome, Jason. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. So when did you 
first recognize gender bias in schools? Was it when you were a student yourself or was it when you were on the other side as an educator? So, uh, you know, these stories, as you begin to delve into this and think about this, particularly on a personal level, stories just start popping up all the time and your memory starts working in overdrive. Through the years, I can identify some of the stories, which are actually in the book. Some of them are very personal from my days in college. Mm. And some of them, you know, a long, long time ago, I'll just say that it was a long, long time ago that I was in college. Also, some of them were from the classroom and they were really specific moments, which kind of lit a fire onto me about this issue. The main one I can tell, which is in the book was I was in my second year of teaching in high school and I'm an English teacher by trade. It was my second year. I was head of the department at this school and the school had a really unique structure where there was a boys campus and there was a girls campus, teachers would go back and forth during the day to teach on both campuses. Well, I thought I was the greatest thing that had ever happened to education but at this point. Uh, you know, I was the best teacher in the school by my own accounts. You know, all the kids wanted to be in my classes. It was a very exciting time. The assistant principal at the school at the time came to me and said that there was four researchers who were doing postdoc work in gender and education. And oh, they wanted to cut, yes, it was, it was really a fascinating moment. Of course, I didn't realize what this was going to lead to. They asked if they could come to my morning 10th grade English girls class. And then in the afternoon, come to my boys class, oh. which was exactly the same class. And same content, felt- same material, same, all of it. Only yeah. not the same, I'm betting. <laughs> you bet, yeah. you bet. I mean, uh, and and they came like 20 times to wow. these classes. This was not a small, you know, small moment snapshot of what was going on. They really did a deep dive into this. At the end of it, of course, I said, this is going to be great because they're going to learn so much from me about how to deal with gender in the classroom. I mean, I'm so wonderful that clearly I figured this all out at the old age of 28, you know, sitting in this classroom, right? I love and- the the uh, enthusiasm of youth and how we are so convinced we have it figured out. And it's so true for all of us. And humility does come with age, does it not? It does. And and also great trepidation as I walk into <laughs> classrooms these days, you know, walking a little bit on eggshells, wondering what I'm doing uh, on this issue in particular. And, you know, we they said, you know, Jason, these were hard academics. And they said, Jason, we'd love to share the results with you if you want to hear. And I said, of course, of course, I want to hear all the wonderful things I'm doing. So it was about three hours of the most excruciating uh, professional evaluation I had ever gotten. And they said, you know, you're so, you're so enthusiastic with your students. You're so engaged. You obviously know your material really well. They said, but there are things but. going on in here. Yeah, there's the and but. There's the, the but. but. Right, right. <laughs> and the next, of course, two and a half hours was the but. Right. And uh, I just, I came out of it feeling both, you know, kind of on one level, kind of horrified on another level, totally energized, mm-hmm. completely energized by what they told me, because I felt they were giving me tons of information, real information and concrete things that were going to make me a much better teacher. You know, Jason, so what kinds of things did they 
see and did they share with you? You know, Janet, I know that your experience in the classroom was you noticed differences between how the boys related to you and the girls. And Jason, it sounds like you were aware of gender and that there were differences. And yet I'm getting the impression that this evaluation wasn't you are the most gender aware teacher we've ever met. (laughs) That's right. That's absolutely correct. You know, I found myself uh, examining really the way in which I interacted with first with the girls, obviously, and the way that I was confusing obedience with engagement. Interesting. And and they were sitting there, they were sitting there looking as if they were being great students, uh, you know, in their in their kind of passivity and silence at the time. And I was imagining, oh, this is going so well. My classroom is so under control. Everything is, you know, everything's moving along here. Everyone's following instructions. And what I really came to realize was that the girls were, after years and years of socialization, their form in many ways of rebelling against what uh, is expected of them is to remain in silence. They're not necessarily trained to speak up and to act out necessarily. So when I started calling on them and, and not waiting for them to be called on, I really started to, you know, I started to mourn the fact that I had spent, you know, all this time with girls in classrooms and, and they really, really weren't engaged in what was going on in the classroom. And I, w- I was the perpetrator of that. I was allowing that to take place as the adult and also as the instructional leader in the classroom. And and so I, I really, you know, again, that really energized me. That got me going on all sorts of diving into ways to get the girls more engaged and get them more involved. The boys, on the other hand, of course, were, as you know, they were the exact opposite. They have been trained to, in many ways, aggressively sometimes lash out when they're in uncomfortable positions where they're being challenged about what they know, how they're able to do things. One of the things that I talk about in the book is the very fragile uh, construction of masculinity that we give boys in this country. And the minute that they start to get uncomfortable, one of the things they start to do is to act out because they're taught that their aggression and their rage is a legitimate form of uh, communication and way to express their discomfort and vulnerability. And when I started to really take a look at this, one of the things that I saw was that of course, my discipline with them was much more uh, aggressive. Mm -hmm. My discipline was then with much more aggressive, which ironically was reinforcing of course, the messages they had been receiving about manhood because here they had this male English teacher who's giving back to them exactly what they're giving and not providing them with a different paradigm to how to be a man in this way, how to, how to open up and express frustration or vulnerability or things like this along the way in the classroom. And again, as I started to work with the boys, one of the things I realized was that they wanted to participate also. They, were, they wanted to understand how to do this, but I needed to figure out different strategies and approaches in the classroom to get them going mm-hmm. in positive ways, right? So just as one example of a strategy, just one example. I call it throwing the fat pitch over the plate. If I have a kid who's really struggling with reading, which we can talk till, we could mm-hmm. spend this entire episode talking about the challenges of boys and literacy skills. If I'm really having a child who's struggling with those things, one of the things I can do is throw them a question 
which is going to be 90% answerable by them. It makes them feel comfortable, confident all of a sudden. It makes them feel they have a place in my classroom. I can give them praise in front of all of their peers for what so they're important. doing. So important, so important that they feel a, you know, a commonality with the other students around them, even though academically they might be in a different place. So by doing that, all of a sudden I've got students who are opening up to me in all sorts of ways because I've given them a door. I've provided them a door. I've said, I believe in you, I trust you, even though this has not been a place where you have been successful before. And by the way, you've been told that this is not necessarily a place you should feel success right. or that that's not the way we define ourselves as men by reading great literature necessarily or poetry or whatever it happens to be. Then if I provide them that opening, all of a sudden I've got them. <laughs> they are so starved for that relational sensibility, particularly with another man who really gets them and can have those conversations with them. I, I've got them hook, line, and sinker. That is such a great tip because so often teachers especially, but and I'll get to how we can apply this as parents too, teachers especially, you know, my job is to ask questions that challenge the students. My job is to see if they know the material. As parents as well, we're so focused on making sure they know the things they need to know, deliberately asking a question that you are nearly 100% certain that they know the answer to, and certainly you know the answer to, it's not about you. It's about, mm -hmm. you know, giving this kid, as you said, a chance to feel like I fit here. There's room for me here. Mm -hmm. Somebody cares about what I think. And feel. Yes. Uh, and feel. And that is part of the strategy that it really allows for the space that exists between you and this other person to the gap to close. And there's a relational space that exists between you and, and a young boy. And I have found this makes all the difference with them. With girls, you know, what I've discovered is that we've really given them the tools along the way to be relational, you know? Yeah. And so therefore they recognize it faster. They're more attuned to it. They have more, they have more triggers that allow them to understand what's going on in the moment. And quite frankly, they don't necessarily need it as much. Ironically, mm -hmm. the boys, like I said before, I feel the boys are starving for it. They're just waiting for someone. Mm -hmm to give them that, particularly a teacher, someone outside, a role model who can really support them and help them as they go along the way of being mm -hmm. in school. Well, and the gift is to have a male teacher doing that. And the reality is what 96% of teachers in America are female. And so, and, and I know you do a lot of work in schools as I have over the years of helping us shift that female lens or open that female lens a little bit. When I started doing teacher training in the mid to late nineties, I would ask, you know, how in your, I didn't have anything around gender, how boys learn, how girls learn in my university training at all wasn't talked about. Then we, I would ask in professional development, have you ever had any training around this? And maybe one hand would go up. Now, lately yeah. in the last few years, that's, that's getting more and more, but it's still, we've got to educate our females, our, our moms and our female teachers. And 
It did occur to me when Jen was reading the opening, when I was teaching in the 90s, the focus was on girls, equity in sports, all of those things. Remember that? Yeah. And then it seems now, you know, we've come this far forward, but and now it seems like the emphasis is on gender fluidity and LBGTQ and and that kind of, you know, how do we support those students? And I'm feeling like we still have this big gap in the middle that we forgot our boys. This has been a huge motivation, one of the huge motivations for me writing this book. One of it has to do with the fact that the great success story of the feminist movements of the 60s and the 70s and the 80s has been we have completely flipped the script on schools, Mm -hmm. right? We've told girls you can do anything you want to, you can learn anything you want to learn, we'll give you access, we're going to give you fair treatment inside the classroom, we're going to make sure that attainment is there. And what we're going to really do is dispel all these ridiculous biological arguments about whether girls can learn at the same level and boys in a number of subject areas. And the data has all played that out. It's radically played that out. Girls are, you know, girls are just ascending in education in America. They're graduating at higher rates. They're graduating from master's programs at higher rates. They're graduating from medical school. I think two years ago, uh, medical school enrollment for women was all of a sudden for the first time higher than for men. Mm, yeah, I don't have the major, numbers, but I know that it has shifted it completely. Major, it is, major sea change. Major, yes. ma- in a very short period of time. You know, it's been a great success story. To, to make the counter argument, I think like you are, it's that we've seen the exact opposite results happening with boys. They're mm-hmm. dropping out of school at record rates. They're not finishing programs. They are, you know, diving off the shelf. They're starting master's programs and not finishing them. They're starting AB programs and not finishing them. All across the line, the data is showing that boys are suffering inside of the current paradigm. Mm -hmm. And one of the things you mentioned, you know, when I go into school and I'm working with a group of faculty members, both for women and men, when I mention Mm -hmm. the word gender, there are two assumptions that are made immediately. One, we're talking about girls and we're talking about feminism. The mm-hmm. second is that we're talking about LGBTQ kids. Exactly. Or, or, or teachers, for that mm-hmm. matter. Mm-hmm. And that's totally acceptable and legitimate and extremely important. But that's not what gender means. That's not what it means. And it really limits our ability to address the concerns of teachers in classrooms who are struggling with this issue. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to correct your facts a little bit. There, 77% of American teachers are women. Over 90% in elementary school are Mm -hmm. women. And this is an important distinction because when I talk to elementary school women teachers, one of the things they tell me often is that they really struggle with trying to figure out boys in their classrooms. It's an enormous struggle they have and they wanna figure it out. They want tools to be able to do this. And they can be in very woke schools, you know, and we can, again, we can have a whole conversation about this, right? When I walk into these environments and they want to tell me that they've totally figured out the gender question, you know, they're teaching all their kids pronouns and everything like that. And then I walk into classrooms and it's like the 1950s again, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, and these teachers are really, they say, Jason, help. 
how do I deal with the disciplinary issues? You know, this is so interesting for me because Janet, that is exactly, you were a first grade teacher. That's exactly where you were. Mm -hmm. Um, I've not been a teacher, but I have four sons and it was the oldest. I only had two at this point and they were like four and two and they were doing things I did not understand, you know, like randomly, seemingly out of nowhere, jumping up and running and jumping on the couch for no, like nothing changed. I could tell why. And so I realized I needed to understand this. You're hearing from teachers who realize on some level, I need to understand this. And you know, our teachers, oh my gosh, are our teachers overwhelmed, overburdened. They do not have time to figure this out on their own. And I don't fault them for this. They deserve to eat, rest, and sleep as much more than most people. I like cute clothes. I like having stylish outfits. And I hate shopping. Armoire makes getting dressed easier. Armoire is a clothing rental membership option. And Janet and I recently have both tried it out. And you guys, it is so much fun. You go to their website, you get to take a little quick style quiz, takes five minutes, and then you get presented a list of beautiful clothing, pictures, wonderful clothes that you can pick out and get delivered to your house for you to try and wear in the comfort of your own home without going out and determine what looks cute, put together outfits without investing a ton of money. Right now, our listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off your first month. That is up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash envoys. That's armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash envoys to get 50% off your first month and never have to worry about what to wear again. Try armoire today. We all know that vitamins can help fill nutritional gaps in our diet, but a lot of us don't like to take vitamins because we don't like swallowing pills. How do you feel about that, Janet? There's some days that I look at my vitamins and go, yeah, I should take those. I'll do it later. But I'll tell you what's changed. I have gotten easy melt vitamins. I have the D3 and I have the B12s and a multivitamin. And I just pop them in my mouth and they dissolve. And I don't have to think about swallowing a vitamin. Yeah, and you don't necessarily need water either to have on hand to get this big vitamin now. Yeah, no, and they taste good. And they're sugar-free. They melt quickly. The reason they melt is because of plants, not chemicals. Ah, plant-based nutrition. For a limited time only, you can receive a free, free three-month supply of Easy Melt Vitamin D3 with your first purchase. To claim your free D3, visit try.easymelts.com slash envoys. That's try, T-R-Y dot easymelts, E-Z-M-E-L-T-S dot com forward slash envoys. And yet in our society, we don't yet acknowledge that gender 
influences the male experience in the world or in education. And that's a very, a very weird thing for me. Like we almost just need to start with drawing attention and saying gender affects boys and men too. Mm-hmm. 100%. And one of the things that I talk about in the book is this idea of the kept prince, you know, okay. and it's a, it's a, it's a, paradigm I use particularly for schools because it seems to it seems to speak to teachers experiences in particular where one of the facts which I discuss and I did my own kind of small study on this with uh, ECE teachers early childhood teachers and you know there your numbers are absolutely correct 98 percent of them Mm -hmm. are women Mm-hmm. Right. So that's one of the reasons I was looking into these environments more. But several studies have reinforced, you know, when when a girl is in an ECE classroom, she is twice as likely to be interrupted when she's speaking by a teacher than a boy is. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, boys are twice as likely to interrupt their teachers than girls are. When they're speaking, there is this sense of and I don't like using the word entitlement. It's not exactly what boys are doing when they're doing this. Boys are, are taught a certain kind of assertiveness and a certain kind of, uh, they make demands on the world. And they're taught to make demands on the world. And that's how, they're, that's how they are shaped in a gender, in a gender environment. Well, this has, this has some good implications. I think we're glad when children in general learn, learn to how to assert themselves and be players in the world. The problem is in classrooms, when you have 30 kids in a classroom and one or two teachers, uh, their assertiveness is often viewed as some kind of a disciplinary action that needs to be taken by the teacher. Mm-hmm. Instead of the teacher learning how to regulate students. Now, when you're in a second grade classroom or third grade classroom, you're already dealing with kids who have eight or nine years of this kind of, uh, you know, interplay going on. Living in the world. Living in the world. And boys are, you know, they're in a state of kind of shock when teachers who do not know how to handle the situation uh, respond to them in such you know rough and difficult ways. It's not necessarily what they're used to. And also on top of that, what I would argue is that it immediately turns them off from the environs of school. Yes, yes, yes. yes. I want to inter- interject a story here because it fits this perfectly. I was observing in a third grade classroom, older female teacher talking about a topic I don't remember what it was. Little boy, imagine, you know, the boys, they're in their seat, but they're jumping out of their seat and raising their hand. And this little boy had something to say. And it was just slightly off the topic that the teacher was talking about, but he knew he, you could tell he knew about this. I think it was frogs or something. He knew, and he wanted to share. And he, like every cell of his being wanted to share this. (laughs) <laughs> bursting and bursting the teacher this teacher was on her track she had think you know she had what she wanted to teach and she shut him down so fast and you could just see his whole demeanor just flop and do you think he was going to listen to the rest of that lesson absolutely not right. then later in the day and my heart was breaking later in the day i i, I walk by and he's standing out in the hall 
what yeah. happened? Oh, the teacher sent me out of the room. Oh, right. I'm sorry. You know what happened? And he said, because I, I said, what, what happened? He said, well, I farted. And he, you know, like as boys do, you know, there might've been a little kerfuffle around it. She said, and no. girls do it too, by the and way, girls do it too. And, and he stood there. You could just tell he was just so in, in puzzlement about, he's like, well, everybody farts and what could I do, but agree. And yet, and so this is where the difference is and where we, we can open up our lens to understand boys' enthusiasm might look a little bit different than girls and how to embrace that. And it is hard when you've got a class of 30 kids. Janet, this relates to something we hear from a lot of our parents as well, uh, specifically moms of boys, because of these differences in socialization, right? We moms are very, very quick to assume some of that is disrespect. It looks like disrespect to us. And because even, even if we're talking about an eight-year-old boy, but especially when we're talking about a 15-year-old boy, mm. and frankly, a lot of us have experienced a lot of disrespect and being interrupted by males in our life. And so we want, you know, you're quick to slam it. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not productive. It's not productive in this case, because as you just shared, I mean, that is a heartbreaking story with that boy. I can't imagine anybody hearing that and not, you know, feeling a bit of their heart go out to this Mm -hmm. poor child out in the hallway. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I hear it across the board from students in particular, when I do workshops at schools, you know, school will call me up and say, you know, we need help with our boys. Right. This is always like, yeah. you know, we need help with our boys and and they're doing things which we just can't, you know, tolerate anymore in the building and it's become a problem and we need. So I will come in and do, you know, two or three days of workshops with boys at different grade levels. And I go through a process again. And, and what do I have to do? I have to immediately take them down from their defensiveness. I have to allow them space to be vulnerable and talk about things with me. So I have to start in a very different place. Mm-hmm. I have to tell them immediately, you know, I argue that every generation of male learns a kind of reactive language to progressive talk in the community about issues of masculinity. This generation is using language, you know, they immediately get triggered by words like toxic masculinity, and, and, you know, woke culture, things like that. They've been trained to kind of use that language. Mm-hmm. And I immediately take it down by saying, we're not talking about toxic masculinity in this room. Nobody in this room is toxic. Yeah. I said, you're all developing, you're all growing. You're, you know, what I, what I talk about with them is something I call default masculinity, mm-hmm. which I say, you're asked very quickly, like, the, like a funnel to fall into certain masculine patterns, right? And one of the things I hear from these boys over and over again, and it just breaks my heart. It just breaks my heart. When I finally get them to open up, one of the things they say to me is, you know, I feel like I'm losing all the time. Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm never winning. I feel like someone is always criticizing me for the things I'm doing. Someone is always telling me I'm doing something wrong. I'm never meeting the expectations of anyone around me, particularly my parents. They, they have these expectations of me, which go back to that issue of a kept prince. 
mm-hmm. you know, where they're born into these kind of unrealistic expectations. They're not even given a chance to prove themselves. They're just expected to do these things. And when, and when they don't meet our expectations immediately, they, they fail, you know, and the boys, they so embody this. It's almost somatized when I walk into the room and talk to them about their experiences. And, and a lot of the times what they really need more than anything else is they need practices to bring down their level of anxiety to bring down their level so they're not doing what you were mentioning before, Janet, about having these reactive moments where Mm -hmm. things escalate out of control because Mm -hmm. someone has told them that they're either not perfect or they're not this or they're not that. And we go through practices which try to bring down their anxiety levels. This is Um, super important stuff because it is not hard to see how we go from many boys, not one or two, many of them feeling, I feel like I'm losing all the time to the fact that our male suicide rates are four times that of females. There's a direct line there. So when you're talking about, um, you know, developing relationships and seeing them and this teaching of strategies to manage this anxiety, Yes, this can help with classroom management, but more importantly, we're talking about saving lives here. Yeah, it's a mental health crisis. Uh, And I I call it that in the book. I talk about this mental health crisis we're having with boys. Again, this this is the different ways in which we socialize girls. You know, we socialize girls in this relational way, in the manner, and ultimately, it's not that they don't have suicidal ideation and they don't struggle with these issues as well, but ultimately, Ultimately, we have strategies by which that they learn how to communicate and uh, communicate and create circles of support mm-hmm. around themselves with the with people around them, other adults, people in their family, friends, and they're able to create this circle. With boys, we do the exact opposite. This funneling and narrowing of masculine identity actually isolates them more and more as they get older. And therefore, they have only one recourse. They only have one way of trying to solve this problem often, which is to see, well, I just, I don't belong here at all. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I'm gonna take I'm gonna take a route which is going to alleviate my pain. It's gonna alleviate th- this enormous anxiety. And of course, many of them don't understand the ramifications of what that means at the age of 13 and 14 mm-hmm. to commit suicide. But that's the tragedy of this. So your um, book includes a chapter about gender-informed responses to trauma and to mental health issues. This is the first time that I have heard somebody use the term gender-informed, which struck me as, yes, of course, but I had not heard it before and I do this work. So explain what you mean by that and how a gender informed approach can, what does that look like? And how does that help our boys? What skills do we need to develop also? Okay, thank you. I mean, that's such a great question. One of the issues that we really need to look at and particularly with young black males in our culture, this is even hyper extended. Okay, mm-hmm. I'm gonna, I'm just gonna say this is, mm-hmm. but school feels for many boys like a carceral experience. Mm-hmm. Like, and by that, it, we mean jail. If you don't, we mean, yeah, we, mean we mean jail, we mean, jail. We mean prison. Yep. 
we mean prison, and it feels like a prison experience. And what happens is, is that boys start to construct within schools very, very unhealthy and trauma-provoking structures that are responses and natural responses to the ways we're asking them to be males. So in other words, that by particularly by middle school, where it's very, very intense, but even by high school, we have what are called the alpha, the betas, and the gammas inside of school environments. And alphas are often the kids who are, they can be succeeding academically, they're sports stars, they're really, they're seen as the up-and-comers in their school. Uh, but they've created, created a social hierarchy in the school where they are literally trying to control the, the social environment of schools. The betas, the larger group inside the, inside the school, the largest group, are they're alpha wannabes. Mm -hmm. They dress like alphas, they look like alphas, they align themselves like alphas. And one of the things they're trying to do is to protect themselves by al aligning themselves with the alphas, right? So that they don't become the victims of alphas, right? Yes. But often in many ways, this is a very vulnerable group, these betas, um, because they are constructing in many ways the most negative and reactionary forms of masculinity there in schools. And they're often doing it at the behest of alphas. We're talking about psychological and uh, physical violence that goes on in schools. Uh, we're talking about sexual violence that goes on in schools. With That's these what I was thinking of. We had Emma Brown on um, a few years ago when her book came out and she shares graphic and horrifying descriptions of sexual violence in schools, in locker rooms. and. I'm not condoning this behavior at all. And I think it is important. What you're pointing out here, Jason, is that many of these boys who are inflicting and going along with it, as you shared, they are desperately trying to avoid being victims. And in the process, they victimize others. And that is all kinds of messed up. We, we as adults can sit here and say that's all kinds of messed up. For these boys, it is it, it's survival. They this is all they know to do, and ah, yeah. I mean, you know, and of course, the ultimate the ultimate victims of this can often be the gammas, mm -hmm. right? Who are this third group who are the target of alphas, who use their power uh, to maintain a kind of social order inside of school environments, and they're often targeting gammas. They're, they're uh, igniting betas to do the work against gammas. And these are often kids who identify as LGBTQ. They're mm -hmm. kids who do not meet our very narrow and unhealthy understanding of, of gender normativity, right? They're, they're kids who, when they get on into the recess yard, they're, they, they want to sit and have conversations with their friends. Mm -hmm. They're not bouncing <laughs> off the walls. Mm -hmm. They're they're the ones who like to play games and they're, you know, they're game players and things like this and all sorts of different kinds of characters who represent a kind of beautiful pastiche of what the possibilities are for masculinity. And I'll use W.R. Connell's language of, you know, a multitude of masculinities. Oh, That's what that. we should be thinking of. Mm -hmm. We should be thinking of a multiculturalism of masculinity that we can identify. And all of them are legitimate and all of them are healthy. This structure, when you think about it, sounds like something that would go on in a prison. Absolutely. 
That's one of the reasons I raise this point. Mm -hmm. And so schools are responsible for the policies in which they have and the practices that are going on in the school and also the knowledge base which faculties have about really addressing these issues. So these social constructs are not only not tolerable, but they're just not the culture of the school. They're not what you breathe in the air Mm -hmm. when you come into a school environment. Um, And that that is the responsibility of schools and administrators and leaders in these schools to really learn how to do that um, and do it on on a very effective level. So our kids can feel safe when they go to school. Mm So realistically, Jason, because we know we're trying to change a, you know, monolithic system here that's been going yes. on forever. What do we, what, what does our listener do tomorrow? What is, what does yeah. a parent do that's listening to this podcast going, oh my gosh, I know this is happening. I don't what know do I do? how to affect it. Exactly, right. Jen. What do I do? Everyone should read my book. No, I'm just, there I'm you just, go. you know, kidding. That's, that's a solution. Well, that'll solve, solve things. <laughs> yeah, that'll go. solve everything. Your uh, publicist is so happy, Jason. Yeah, go, I know. Go, they're, go, just, baby. they're loving me right now. Right? Wait a so, second. I am seeing shades of 20 something Jason going, yeah, right, I got exactly. it all. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I can laugh about it now. That's the only difference. Right. right? It's, uh, I'm more self aware about it. But I, I'm going to give you one example of something that can happen in schools. Okay, and and something I've spoken to about to administrative leaders, to principals, to heads of schools. When girls get into fights, physical fights in schools, all of a sudden we have six school psychologists, we have interventionists, we have like we're we're like we're all kind of weirded out by girls punching each other or hitting each other and getting into aggressive fights. Right? We we feel like it's a a therapeutic moment, hmm. right? When something like that happens. When boys get into fights in schools, one of the things that I show administrators is that the language they use to describe what has happened in their reports and what's going to happen is that the boys are doing normal and acceptable forms of emotional expression. Dang. This is a normal and healthy way for boys to express each other by, by punching each other in the face. I grew up in a very rough neighborhood in New York City at the time. And I'll tell you something right now. There felt nothing normal or normative about getting into fights and getting punched in the face. It felt like something really horrible and terrible had just taken place as you watched these fights unfold in schoolyards. And I think that school administrators need to stop saying, well, these are just boys being boys. Mm-hmm. And we need some kind of adjusted response to male violence in schools, which both takes into fact their, their enormous humanity, their enormous pain, things that are going on with them, which lead them to do what they did. And that doesn't exclude a response. That doesn't mean that we don't respond to it. What it means is that we don't treat it as something normative inside of our environments. So that's one example about about the way that schools can really shift their lenses. And I think parents have to be the same way about it. Um, I think parents need to uh, really rethink what happens when when kids are being, you know, when boys are being really aggressive and physical with one another and what that means. It's not necessarily a good narrative. And we have to learn how, we need a different language to respond to it with boys. I think that we, as parents, Uh, can push our schools 
a little bit. And it is especially on those of us who are parenting boys, we have a role to play here. And yes, yes, I laughed at you, but seriously, if we all bought this book and shared it with our administrators, bought a copy Mm -hmm. that can start making a difference because it's awareness, right? Advocating for our boys. Those of us who are, have boys, we are getting phone calls from school. Trust me. Um, And so, you know, regardless of what it is, we can, we have a role to play in holding our schools accountable. No, I do not want my son, you know, fighting with somebody else at school, but I also don't want overly harsh punishment versus, uh, like you said, a more therapeutic approach. So parents, if you feel that the school is being harsh that is worth a conversation. That is worth advocating. We struggle with that sometimes. I know we've heard from listeners already, Janet, like, where do I draw the line between, I want to support teachers. Hell, their job is hard. I don't want to be that parent saying, well, my kid, it's a tough line to walk, but we have to advocate because our boys aren't in a position to do so in the classroom right now. Yeah. And, and one of the things I tell parents when I do parent groups around this is that, you know, schools are the experts in terms of educating children. Parents are the experts in their children. Yes. Mm-hmm. So those two, th- there needs to be a partnership between those two worlds to effectively educate a child. There, there's not, there can't be an exclusion of parents from the conversation. They need to be really included in a very positive way to make this happen and to support our, our boys in this way. And, you know, Jennifer, I've made those phone calls. You know, I've had to call <laughs> the parents when things like this happen in schools. And one of the oddest things to me about this is that we can both suspend or expel a child from school for yep. punching someone in the face and at the same time express that it's something uh, totally acceptable and normative. That seems to me bizarre. That is crazy. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. There's yeah. something crazy about it. And, it, it, you know, it has to do with these norm, normalized archetypes and stereotypes of what we think about men. I am so looking forward to your book coming out, Jason. I will be one of those parents who buys a copy and shares it with the school. That's how important I think this is. My kids will likely be out of school by the time they get around to meaningful change, but this has to change. And I will keep talking about this. Listeners, I encourage you to do the same. We have to remind people that boys are part of the gender equation. And if we pay attention to our boys and we include them in this equation, school is better for all of us. Society is better for all of us. Jason, um, one more time, give us the name of your book and then where listeners can um, find you. I know you've got some materials related to your book on your website. I do. Uh, the, The book's title is The Gender Equation in Schools, How to Create Equity and Fairness for All Students. And it can be found on the Rutledge website and also at uh, Amazon. It's now listed for pre-order on Amazon as well. Educators can get, you know, if they're interested in buying copies for their entire faculties, we can work on obviously bulk discounts. My website is ablineducation.com. And that's also where I blog, where I have a number of blog posts on this subject matter. 
And my blog is called Educating Gender, if you search for it. Thank you so much for this enlightening conversation. Terrific. Thank you so much for having me. It's this been great. is great. Yeah. Thank you Thank for joining you. us, Jason. This has been the On Voice Parenting Podcast. I challenge you, dear listener, to share this episode with your class teacher, with the school counselor, with a school administrator to just get the conversation rolling and then go and pre-order Jason's book. Let's get this conversation that supports our boys and our girls and all of our students in a less gender biased way. This is the On Boys Parenting Podcast. I am Janet Allison here with Jennifer L.W. Fink. And hey, don't forget, Q for Quinn.com, comfy socks for kids and adults, boxers, pajamas, all ethically sourced. Go to Q4Quinn.com. Use the On Boys discount code for 10% off at purchase. And once again, thank you for being our listeners. We appreciate you and look forward to hearing your thoughts about this topic of gender and education. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park